Well, thank you for those of you who prayed for us. It's great to be back. And um, we are diving back into the middle of the book of Revelation. And if, uh, if, you're, if you're the kind of person that reads the Bible by looking for some passage that makes you feel better, you probably never latch on to this passage that we're going to be reading today. Um, recently, I ran into uh, uh, Nathan Peach at, the, uh, at his sister's wedding, and it reminded me of something that Becky told me once, that uh, I did premarital counseling with Nathan and, Pe- and Meg, his wife, and uh, then several years later, Becky came to me and she said, we were just out visiting them and Nathan said, you know, now is when I wish that I could go through the premarital counseling. <laughs> when we listened to it, it went right over our heads. We didn't think we needed it. We didn't, didn't really take it seriously. But now this is hard. <laughs> I wish we could go back and, and go through that stuff again that we went through. And the fact is, that's human nature. And uh, it's that way even in preaching. It's so easy for us to, uh, you know, be looking for something that, that uh, has the kind of effect on us that a lollipop has, you know, just gives us a little kick of, of joy or happiness, and, uh, but doesn't necessarily do us much good in the long term. It can, of course, but the fact is that God's given us his word, which is rich with all kinds of minerals and nutrients and things that don't necessarily taste great at the moment, but make you strong and healthy in the long term. And this passage this morning, Revelation 13, 11 to 18, is one such passage, I believe. Now, for those of you who are, uh, have not been with us through the first half of the book of Revelation, um, I know that that's, this isn't the easiest thing to do, to just suddenly jump in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation. I have prepared a little uh, explanation of how, of how I interpret the book of Revelation and why. And uh, that will be uh, handed out to anyone who wants it at the end during announcements because I don't want you to be reading it now while I'm preaching. But uh, that, that is something that I prepared for you. And also, these sermons are all online and the notes are online. And so you can, to your heart's content, uh, go back and and see what we've already done and go through today's sermon again. These are, this is already online as they almost always are on our website, gpcweb.org. I believe that the book of Revelation is basically giving believers in this present age the bad news and the good news about the age in which we live which is the age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. After the seven trumpets, which we went through, we were introduced to to three characters, or we are introduced to three characters, which will be present in the drama 
for numerous chapters to come until the final judgment scene in Revelation 20. We've already met the first of these two characters, the first two of these characters, the great red dragon and the first beast. The dragon, remember, who went after the woman and her offspring in Revelation chapter 12, is Satan. Yet we're told that in 12.9. And then the first beast, I interpret as the Antichrist, which is, who is referred to in um, some of the epistles. He is a political ruler who both opposes Christ and seeks to usurp Christ's position. We saw that there seems to be a double meaning when it comes to this first beast and the Antichrist. He's an individual who will live near the end of history, but there are also many preliminary fulfillments of Antichrists down through history. As it says in 1 John 2.18, Children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. See also 1 John 4.3 and 2 John 7. In other words, though there is an Antichrist tyrant coming at the end of history, there are many lesser Antichrists who will appear down through history. And so it seems that the beast is not just the future Antichrist with a capital A, but the spirit of Antichrist, which is in existence even in our present period. But there's a third character to add to this drama. And today we will learn about him, or it, a second beast who is in cahoots with the dragon and the first beast. A beast who will later be referred to as the false prophet. And I'll refer to him as the false prophet numerous times today, even though he's not introduced in the, as the false prophet until a little later on in the book. In a verse chapter 16 to be specific, verse 13. So here's our passage today. Beginning in Revelation 13, 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, 
to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell until he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Okay, I'd first like to make three observations from this passage that are things that we can see from a bird's eye view, not just here in this one verse, but from the whole passage as a whole. The first one is that unlike the first beast, the second beast does religious work. It promotes worship. We see that in verse 12. It performs miracles. We see that in 13 and 14. It even conducts some form of ecclesiastical discipline, punishing people who won't worship. We see that in 15 to 17. Later, we see it also prophesies. For it's called the false prophet in Revelation 16, 13, 19, 20, and 2010. All of these are essentially religious activities. And that is the sphere in which this beast operates. That's the first observation. The beast operates in the sphere of religion. The second observation is that the second beast is a promoter of the first beast. Getting Earth's inhabitants to worship the first beast. Verse 12, it says that it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Notice the stark contrast, though, between what this beast looks like and what this beast does. Remember that the great red dragon was hideous with its seven heads and ten horns. Well, in contrast, this second beast has the appearance of a lamb, as we see in verse 11. But even though it appears as a lamb, it speaks like a dragon. The first beast spoke loudly and defiantly against God. But the second beast influences not so much by intimidation, but by subtlety and allure, like the serpent in the garden when he deceived Adam and Eve. The second beast makes the first beast's brash claims sound plausible and persuasive. It appears harmless like a lamb. But what it promotes is satanic. The third observation that we can make of the passage as a whole. One of the things that Bible students have noticed down through the centuries from this part of the book of Revelation. Is that there's sort of a satanic trinity going on here. 
The dragon, Satan, the first beast, the Antichrist, and the second beast, the false prophet, form like a counterfeit trinity. As the Son receives authority from the Father, so the first beast receives authority from the dragon. As Christ dies and is resurrected, so the first beast appears as slain and risen again. As the Lamb of God is worshipped by a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and tongues and peoples, so the beast is served by every tribe and people and tongue and nation in 13.7. As the Spirit glorifies the Son, so the second beast glorifies the first beast. As Jesus did many signs and wonders in order to point people to his truth, so the second beast performs great signs to deceive those who dwell on the earth. Verse 13 and 14. And just as the three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in several verses of the New Testament, like the Great Commission, where they shall be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, for instance, and elsewhere, so the three parts of this counterfeit Trinity are mentioned together in two places. 16.13, which says... I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits. So they're associated together. Revelation 20 verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As we'll see in a moment also this counterfeit trinity is also connected by the reference to the number 666 in verse 18, but we'll get to that. So the first and second beasts are the helpers of the dragon in his mission to make war against the members of Christ's church. So, now that we've looked at those three observations, if the first beast is the Antichrist, what is the second beast? Is he the anti-Holy Spirit? Well, yes and no. The second beast is the false prophet, the one who speaks falsehoods in the name of God. The second beast seems to be the religious arm of this satanic trio. Many have taken the first beast to be a political power and the second beast to be a religious power, although they're working hand in hand under the guidance of Satan himself, the dragon. In some ways, this second beast seems to represent false religion and the counterfeit church but also the counterfeit Holy Spirit who empowers and indwells false religion and the counterfeit church. The first beast represented a threat from outside the church. The second beast represents, it seems, mainly a threat from inside the church. 
the threat of the false prophet. Now, there are two strange things in this passage that I'd like to give some attention to now. The first one is satanic miracles. In verses 13 and 14, we're told that the beast performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven and to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. Now this is, fits in very nicely with what Jesus himself taught, told us in Matthew 24, 24. When he said, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. I love that he included that little, if possible, to make it clear that ultimately he can't deceive the ones that are sealed by the Lord. But that's what he's trying to do. We also see this in Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. When he's talking about the Antichrist, he says, The one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Now, I invite you to go back in your memories now to the story of Moses. Remember when Moses was given these signs to do in front of the Egyptians? And their response was to call forth the sorcerers. And the sorcerers, we're told, were actually able to mimic what Moses had done and perform wonders and signs as well. In Exodus 7, 11, and 12. In fact, verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 13 here, seems to continue the theme of Moses and Elijah that we've already seen up in the in this progress of Revelation up to this point. Remember the two witnesses in Revelation 11:6 were clearly designated as as the fulfillments of Moses and Elijah. And we're told in verse 13 that the second beast performs great signs, which reminds us of Moses who was given power to perform great signs in Egypt, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, which reminds us of Elijah who twice was given the power to call down fire from heaven to consume people in 1 Kings 18 and 2 Kings 1. In both of those stories, remember, Moses and Elijah had opponents who tried to imitate their powers with limited success. So this false now, in the beast, this false Moses and Elijah performed signs and wonders just like the Egyptian adversaries of Moses did. But notice in verse 14 that these signs are the signs which it is allowed to work. They can do this only because God is allowing them to do it. So God has all power. There's no one who has a power that he holds against God. 
Every power comes from God in the beginning. Okay, so the second strange thing in the passage, and the most obvious one, is verse 18, the number 666. So, it says in verse 18, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Obviously, verse 18 is one of the most debated verses in the entire book of Revelation because of the disagreement over the identification and meaning of the number 666. And there have been many theories about what particular person this is referring to. In fact, we have the writings of Irenaeus from the second century, you know, just uh, less than a century after the... uh, the writing of Revelation. And he has a number of suggestions of who this might be. And every single one of his suggestions is someone that we don't even know about today. The most popular device that scholars and students have used over the years to try to figure out who this might be is called... Geometry or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's, that's what it looks like. Which is a way of calculating based on the numerical system of using letters to stand for numbers, which was generally the way that numbers were symbolized in ancient languages. So you take each letter also has a number, and each one, then you take up the take the letters and add them all together to see how much the total is, and they're trying to say, okay, what adds up to 666? But the fact is, no reasonable suggestion adds up to 666 neatly. Many attempts have been made, therefore, to adjust the spellings or to incorporate the titles to try to make the names fit, but nothing conclusive has emerged over the centuries. The most common proposal today is Nero Caesar. And they've added the Caesar because Nero is not enough, so they add Caesar. Of course, Nero had many titles. You, they just That one works closest, but that adds up only to 616. Still not 666. To get to 666, involves taking the Hebrew transliteration of of Nero Caesar instead of its regular Greek form, which is the language that they operated in in the Roman Empire, which seems far-fetched. Not only this, but no ancient writer has been found that proposed the name Nero as the fulfillment of the 666, even though they all were very aware of who Nero was. To make, to to illustrate the fact that this can even become comical, one scholar named David Brady studied the theories about the meaning of 666 which were proposed by British writers only from the year 1560 to the year 1830. And he wrote a book, which I'm sure you'd be interested in reading, 
the contribution of British writers between 1560 and 1830 to the interpretation of Revelation 13, 16 to 18. And in his book, he lists well over a hundred varying interpretations of the number 666. Some based on Hebrew, some based on Greek, some based on Latin, which were all confidently proposed during this 270... 70 year period by merely British writers. Included in the list are Roman emperors, popes, Protestant reformers, famous figures of the time like John Wesley. If an interpreter is determined and creative and clever, he can figure out a way to make his theory add up to 666 one way or another. The reason there are so many proposals is because it's so easy to turn a name into a number. But it's so very difficult to determine the right name from the number. One scholar named Salman poked fun at the whole enterprise by summarizing the techniques that were being used. He said, first if the proper name by itself does not add up to 666, add a title and see if that works. Secondly, if the sum cannot be found in Greek, try Hebrew or even Latin. Third, do not be too particular about the spelling. He then concluded, we cannot infer much from the fact that a key fits the lock if it is a lock in which almost any key will turn. And as Greg Beale says, if the number were intended to be identified with some ruler by means of such calculations, it would be a rare exception from the way numbers are employed elsewhere in the book of Revelation. So maybe the whole approach is wrong. Maybe there's a better way to think about 666. It says in verse 18 that 666 is the number of a man. And it's a little bit difficult to determine what that actually, it could mean two different things. It could be the number of a, a man or it could be the number of man. Sixth, the sixth day, after all, was the day in which man was created. And as we look through the Old Testament, you know, we see Goliath had, was six cubits tall, and his, the head of his spear weighed six shekels. Nebuchadnezzar's image was 60 cubits high and six wide. Just before Solomon apostatized, he received 666 talents of gold. Jesus was crucified on the sixth day at the sixth hour. The sixth seal and the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl all depict God's judgment on wicked mankind. And since seven is the number of perfection, Six is the number of less than perfect. 
So maybe 666 is the trinity of imperfection, meaning ultimate imperfection, perpetual imperfection. Now, verse 18 begins by saying, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. It seems that John is calling God's people to have spiritual and moral discernment here, not mere intellectual ability to solve a complex mathematical riddle, which unbelievers, as well as believers, have the mental ability of solving. The number three in the Bible signifies completeness. As in the completeness of the Trinity, which we saw is being parodied, 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 and counterfeited by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet here in Revelation 12 and following. Therefore, maybe the 666, the six being repeated three times, may refer to the complete incompleteness found in this counterfeit Trinity. Implying that the number of the divine trinity would be 777. And this is 666. So, that could be the explanation of the number 666. That it just refers to the inherent imperfection of everything that's man alone. So now let's think about why this is here and what God is trying to say to us through it. I believe that this is written to inform us that we are under assault. This whole section tells us that there's a team of evil forces uniting, united against the people of Christ, seeking to lure them away from their Savior. And specifically in this passage, we learn that the spirit of Antichrist expresses itself within the sphere of religion and even in the sphere of the church. The religious, and this is remarkable, I think, the religious and the non religious are actually potentially in cahoots in opposing Christ. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 14. Religion is one of Satan's greatest ways of deceiving. Because when you speak in the name of God, people listen. This is why believers must not be pro religion, but only pro Christ. We're not even pro every Christ, for there are counterfeit Christs which are as false as atheism. But there's only one true Christ. I'm not suggesting that our church or our tradition or our denomination has a corner on the true Christ. But I am saying what the New Testament says that there are false Christs and false prophets. Jesus said, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. 
Matthew 24, 5 and 11. False Christ might bear a resemblance to the real true lamb, just as counterfeit money bears a resemblance to real money. But false Christs and false prophets serve the serpent. You know, in Old Testament Israel, there was often an evil tyrant on the throne. And one of the things those tyrants did to maintain their power over the people was to hire prophets to prophesy in ways that they would that would promote and protect the power of the tyrant and the will of the tyrant. You can see this clearly in the story of Ahab and Micaiah in 2 Chronicles 18. And beloved, this is going on today. I'm not saying that I believe in some conspiracy theory that some political ruler out there is pulling strings and coercing religious leaders to promote their agenda. Whether or not there's any truth to those kinds of things, there is certainly a satanic conspiracy going on which is doing this very thing. And that's why Jesus told us in 7.15 of Matthew, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Also in this passage, we learn again about economic persecution. We've already seen it in 2.9 and 6.5 and 6. In 16 and 17 here it says that the beast causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So just as cattle are branded to designate ownership and slaves were given a mark to show who their master was and just as the saints were sealed by God in their foreheads in Revelation 7.3 and other places, so this beast gives Satan's stamp of approval to those who go along with its religious demands. And folks are willing to receive the mark of the beast because it's their ticket to protection and prosperity. Marketplace persecution and employment persecution has been one of the primary means of persecution of Christians down through the centuries. And many of our brethren live under this every day. Ask Melanie how it happens in Japan. It's, it's a real eye-opener. And it's happening in our society in, in subtle ways, it, even in, in our society. Increasingly, companies are making it harder and harder for Christian workers to succeed in their work without participating in the idolatries of the culture. If you believe that there's something which is ultimately true and which determines what is right and wrong and to which we must all submit, or if you don't believe in doing whatever it takes to increase the bottom line of the company, or if you don't believe in celebrating the LGBTQ agenda, or if you aren't willing to burn the candle at both ends in order to succeed, then you get squeezed out. 
Only those who would rather die than compromise their faith will refuse the mark of the beast in spite of the consequences. They know you can't serve two masters ultimately. And this helps separate those who have true faith from those who have false faith. The passage actually reminds us of the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the golden statue that he built in Daniel 3. In Revelation 13, 14, and 15 here, it talks about the second beast arranging for an image of the first beast to be made and giving the image breath and empowering it to speak and then causing those who refuse to worship the image to be slain. Doesn't it sound like the very same thing in Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue? That they were slain if they refused to bow down to the statue? So here Christians are being called to persevere in the fire, just like Daniel's friends did who refused to bow to the, stat, to the image. And we know that believers by the Son of God who is... So this calls to mind the story, and the story reminds us that we are indeed protected, just as we've already been told that we've been sealed by God. We might suffer and might even die. But we will ultimately receive the reward of eternal life if we endure. Unbelievers, on the other hand, they may receive some temporary prosperity. But in the end, they will be punished with eternal death. Fortunately, if you belong to Christ, he has put his seal upon you to protect you and preserve you from Satan's designs. However, if you don't truly belong to Christ, then flee to him today. Run to him right now. He is our only hope. He is a mighty fortress where his people can be shielded and nourished. Flee to him in faith and he will take you as his own child. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its chilling warnings, its graphic images, and Lord, for its powerful truths. Help us today to take these things to heart, to be haunted by them as we need to be haunted, to be uh, given joy by them as we need your joy. To be comforted and strengthened by them, dear Lord, as we need to be comforted and strengthened. And now, dear Lord, as we come to the table of our Lord, we thank you for it. That even in the midst of all of our woes and our trials and our struggles, that you have called us to yourself and that you have offered to feed us and nourish us. Help us to come. Help us to draw near to you. And we pray that you would indeed draw near to us. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.